Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello, and welcome to the Rackman Review. I'm Martin Sandu, European Economics Commentator for the Financial Times. I'm standing in for Gideon Rackman. This was the week the U.S. ended two decades of military presence in Afghanistan. On August 30th, the last U.S. soldier stepped onto a military plane which left the beleaguered Kabul airport under cover of night. In this edition of the Rackman Review, we look at how the U.S. withdrawal reflects on the 20-year involvement by Washington and its allies, and what it says about where both Afghanistan and the U.S. go from here. My guest is Sarah Chase, who knows Afghanistan both as a former journalist and a one-time advisor to the U.S. military leadership there. We discussed what will be the legacy of Biden's decision to end America's so-called forever wars. Sarah Chase began her own decade in Afghanistan when U.S. forces first toppled Taliban rule. I was a reporter for National Public Radio, and I had made friends with some of the militias that the U.S. uh, forces had armed and was riding around town. And interestingly, even then, just after the fall of the Taliban, one of those militia commanders said to me, you know, what are we doing in charge here? This wasn't supposed to be about us warlords. That's what he said, us warlords. We were hoping that the United States would bring, you know, a proper government with rule of law. She stayed on to start several nonprofit organizations and ended up working on the staff of the top U.S. military leadership. But she was to become a severe critic of the way the U.S. handled the operation. She has described this in two books, Thieves of State, about how corruption in the U.S.-supported Afghan state laid the ground for the Taliban's return, and Everybody Knows on Corruption in America Itself. President Biden, however, has tried to put a brave face on the U.S. withdrawal. He said sticking to the deal agreed between his predecessor, Donald Trump, and the Taliban was the best course of action. So we're left with a simple decision. Either follow through on the commitment made by the last administration and leave Afghanistan, or say we weren't leaving and commit another tens of thousands more troops going back to war. That was the choice, the real choice. But the sorry spectacle was plain for all to see. In weeks, the Taliban reconquered the country, while the Afghan army that the U.S. had supposedly built up evaporated. The scrambled evacuation playing out on TV screens around the world was darkly reminiscent of the U.S. helicopters leaving Saigon in 1975. The withdrawal from Afghanistan of just 2,500 American soldiers was the catalyst for this, the evacuation of tens of thousands of Afghans. What an absolute tragedy for them and a complete humiliation for the Western powers, the Americans and the British in particular. In a few short weeks, more than 100,000 foreign nationals and Afghan citizens fearing for their life under a Taliban government had to be airlifted out of Kabul. Even more darkly, in the last few days of a U.S. occupation launched to rid Afghanistan of terrorists, a suicide bomber killed 13 U.S. soldiers and more than 100 Afghan civilians in an attack at Kabul airport. 
We have just learned from the Pentagon, this is their statement, we can confirm that a number of U.S. service members were killed at the Kabul airport. A number of others are being treated for wounds. A number of Afghans fell victim to this heinous attack. You're looking at the very difficult pictures coming in from the scene, and we warn you, many of these images are graphic. A suspected suicide bomber detonating near the Abbey Gate at the airport. That's one of the main entrances of the airport. Even so, Biden is adamant that the U.S. had long since achieved its only purpose in Afghanistan. I asked Sarah Chase if she agreed that in the decade she spent in Afghanistan, U.S. goals had been met. I really don't. First of all, because you can't just topple a government and then, you know, walk away. So once the United States toppled the Taliban government, it bore responsibility for what would come afterwards. And I would just compare, you know, the situation in Europe and Japan after World War II or even South Korea after the Korean War. There was no mention then of, oh, we defeated the Nazis, let's turn around and and go home. So I just find it interesting that that is what's being said today about a country that obviously was in much more need of serious support after all of its institutions had been destroyed by 25 or 30 years of fighting. Secondly, I would say, did we really do so well against the stated goal, which was to eradicate terrorism? The fact is that the terrorists, both al-Qaeda and the Taliban, were being supported and maintained and reconstituted by the Pakistani military intelligence agency. And the only reason that Osama bin Laden was eventually killed in 2011 is because, you know, U.S. forces chose not to warn their Pakistani partners that the raid was coming because they knew that the Pakistani military intelligence agency, the ISI, was likely to warn bin Laden. So here's a country that constituted the Taliban in the first place, that harbored Osama bin Laden, that reconstituted the Taliban beginning 2003, and that on the side was providing nuclear technology to both North Korea and Iran. And yet to this day, that country is still considered an ally of the United States. And so I just wonder how effective have we even been in addressing the real roots or the supporters of some of these terrorist activities. And finally, during the 10 years, an effort was made or a stated effort was underway to establish an Afghan government that could be called a democratic government. However, U.S actions were actually the reverse. What we ended up supporting and enabling was a government of kleptocrats, frankly, whose practices were increasingly offensive to the ordinary Afghan people whom we were asking to take risks to resist the Taliban. That is, of course, lamentable in itself, Would you also connect it directly to the spectacular military failure of the Afghan forces over the last month? I very much would. And I would say there were a number of factors. One was, first of all, building a conventional army. You know, I mean, you were in an insurgency. And who operates well against an insurgency? Well, of course, it's mobile, agile, skillful special forces, not large top-heavy, equipment-heavy 
conventional armies. And yet that is what the U.S. and its NATO allies built. The second problem is the army simply wasn't what we thought it was. Equipment was in short supply because superior officers were stealing and selling it. There were not as many men in uniform in the ranks as we said there were, because often names would be put on the roster for people who were not actually in the field so that their commanding officers could collect their salaries. And the second problem is that, you know, these military and police officers who were supposedly fighting the Taliban were also mistreating their fellow citizens and were examples of precisely the type of government corruption that you know, ordinary Afghan citizens found so repugnant. And so what I want to say is that Afghans are good fighters. If they had a government that they could be proud of, they wouldn't have needed our help to fight off the Taliban. I think that the U.S. and its NATO allies were not very alert to what was really happening on the ground. There's no way that there was such a sudden and simultaneous surrender of so many provinces and military units without there having been some negotiating that happened ahead of time. So we had our eyes riveted on negotiations in Doha, whereas the really important negotiations were happening on the ground with provincial governors and with, you know, Afghan national army generals and whatnot. Sarah, you're describing... Two things. One is a willful blindness on the part of the US with respect to the role of Pakistan, both 20 years ago and throughout these two decades and still today. And you're describing at best a neglect and incompetence in terms of building institutions that were robust and that could enjoy strong support among ordinary Afghans and Afghan soldiers. So I'd like you to explain how we can understand, account for these failures. What could the US, and for that matter, its allies, what could they have done differently? How could they have performed better? Or was this a hopeless task to begin with? It was certainly not a hopeless task, Martin. And, you know, I mean, on my website, there is a a blog that I put up that was a document that I circulated to the highest levels of the incoming U.S. government in 2009, as well as to the highest military commanders in the field called a Comprehensive Action Plan for Afghanistan. And it charts a completely different approach that would have put the people rather than the venal and opportunistic government officials who had pressed themselves forward at the center of our operations and imposed a degree of accountability for the gigantic resources that were flowing into the country, it would have made those resources much more conditional, and it would have established mechanisms whereby ordinary people could exercise oversight roles on their own government officials. When I would ask an Afghan how he would define corruption, I'm thinking of one case in particular, it was a grape cultivator from a village outside of Kandahar. And he said, he didn't give me a definition. He gave me a story. And the story was this. When a district governor gets all of the development resources and surrounds himself with armed dogs who keep us, the people, from getting through to register our concerns and complaints, that's corruption. There were other ways we could have done it. 
It's the lack of checks and balances. Well, exactly. And so when we say that we were imposing American or Western democracy on a country that just wasn't ready for it or didn't want it, it makes me smile sadly because I say, oh, really? Is this in fact the state of Western democracy? A country ruled by networks of cronies who hold the top positions in government and in the private sector, who unfairly corral all of the public procurement contracts, who lord it over their neighbors, and who are often intertwined in networks with out-and-out criminals, such as narcotics traffickers. And I have to say, Martin, for me, this is the strongest lesson that we need to derive from Afghanistan. It's not so much about why is our foreign policy failing or what does the way we behaved in Afghanistan, what does it tell us about ourselves? Rather, let's take a look at the Afghan government. The Afghan government itself is not all that different from the U.S. government or a number of Western governments in this way. You know, in the development world, it's fashionable to talk about fragile or or failing states. And what I would often say in those conversations in the past is that they may be fragile or failing as states, but they're in fact run by amazingly sophisticated and successful networks, these horizontally and vertically integrated networks that are bent not on governing. That's not their objective. Their objective is enriching themselves, and they've done a stupendous job of it. Well, well, let me just ask you to consider the United States, and I'm sure the same can be said of Great Britain and other Western countries. But in the United States, around Washington, you can see these developments of McMansions that have sprung up since 2001, these massive dwellings. Consider the offshore bank accounts. Consider the other assets such as fine art, the bonuses and pay packages of senior executives in, you know, defense contracting firms, financial investment firms, pharmaceutical companies, real estate investors, not to mention fossil fuel companies. And these executives have often been cycling in and out of government over the last 20 years. In President Biden's remarks this week, there was one line that stood out for me. He said, this decision about Afghanistan is not just about Afghanistan. It's about ending an era of major military operations to remake other countries. What I'm taking from what you've just said is that there are possibly two misconceptions in that line. One is that you will not succeed militarily without state building uh, or institution building and, and successful governing institutions elsewhere. And secondly, you will not be able to do that or achieve that without successful restoration of good institutional governance in the US. Sarah, I'd like to ask you what is next now for Afghanistan and for the US, but let's start with Afghanistan. If you were to advise, what what should global power's policy towards Afghanistan now be? Um, I think if you want to know the direction Afghanistan is likely to go, Again, I would look to Pakistan. I'm not saying that the Pakistani military government exercises perfect control over the Taliban, but it exercises very significant control. And so the question really ought to be, what does the Pakistani military establishment, not to mention its friends, 
the Chinese and Saudi Arabian governments. But what does the Pakistani military establishment see as its strategic interest? If you can get a handle on that, then you will, I think, have a sense of the direction that Afghanistan is likely to go. Meaning, I don't really see it to be in the interest of the Pakistani military intelligence agency to sponsor large-scale international terrorist attacks like the 9-11 attacks on New York and Washington. I can perfectly well imagine, as is already going on, the targeted assassinations of specific people who were emblematic, right, who were in view. That's how asymmetric violence works. It's not about racking up the bodies. It's about selectively targeting and then displaying individual acts of violence that are conceived to have the maximum psychological effect. That I see continuing. But there's a ray of hope for me, not hope, but possibility, an opening for determination. And it's this. I just wonder, would it ever have been possible to reform this clunking government of aging war criminals and kleptocrats that the West had been supporting all these 20 years? As terrible as the manner in which this withdrawal has proceeded, It is just possible that out of the calamity, an opportunity opens for the younger generation of Afghans to really start conceiving of a government that they could be proud of, that would represent values that they wish to incarnate. This would be extraordinarily difficult because they would be doing it from outside the country largely or from a very vulnerable position inside the country and up against you know, the determination, again, of the Pakistani military establishment and its backers in China and Saudi Arabia, and frankly, amidst a rather bumbling and uncomprehending Western reaction. But these are the types of people I think that Western governments ought to be seeking out and supporting. And secondly, I'd like to say that, you know, as much as the Afghan population may have changed in the last 20 years, so have the Taliban. And one way is this. They have been watching people they know well make millions off of the international community, and they are very interested in tapping into some of that manna. So I would urge Western governments to be very parsimonious about how they meet out recognition, and especially the financial resources that go with it. Because, you know, even when we were supposedly in charge of how that development and humanitarian assistance was provided to Afghanistan, much of it never made its way to ordinary men and women on the ground. Well, how much less of it will be distributed to Afghan women and children when the Taliban are controlling the pipeline? So I would just be very careful and not give in to feelings of guilt and sympathy and just throw open the faucets again, because most of that money will wind up right in the pockets of the Taliban leadership if history is any reference. So I think the international community needs to take a bit of humility from this failure and go slowly and try to keep in touch with 
ordinary Afghans on the ground. This will be difficult, of course, since, as, as you point out, even when the U.S. and its allies had the power in the country, they failed to do that sufficiently. Your thesis is that these failures are really rooted in institutional failures in Washington. So to finish, let me ask you what is next for America in terms of its foreign policy, its military policy, and also its relations with its allies who have stood by it and basically let it run the show in Afghanistan for 20 years. Um, Just to pick up on your first point, remember that verification provisions are almost always part of treaties with hostile governments. The same should apply to the Taliban government if, you know, there's ever to be any provision of resources. Those decisions need to be based on conditions and there need to be provisions for independent verification that the Taliban are in fact upholding their side of any agreement that's reached. For the United States, I really think we're almost in an existential crisis at the moment. And unfortunately, various identity groupings have distracted us from underlying patterns. So whether it be which political affiliation we have or what gender we happen to be or what race, those concerns, I think, are overshadowing more than they ought to the underlying problem, which is the super rich and the coalition, the kind of networks of super rich who are really running the country by, again, establishing these sort of super highways where, you know, they spend a few years in government and then a few years in the private sector and in and out and in and out. And and the point of being in government is not so much to fill their own pockets then and there with, let's say, procurement but rather to bend the rules in ways that will serve the network as a whole. And until American citizens really pivot to focus their attention on that danger, which in my view outweighs any danger that any terrorists ever pose to the United States and the world, I think that the future is a little bit worrisome, both for for my country and for the world. And the same goes for how we interact with our allies. I would just turn to NATO countries and say, hasn't this withdrawal been executed just the same way that the 20 years of involvement was executed with you basically being treated as second-class allies to the United States? I mean, to what extent were allies who had personnel, who had Afghan employees, who had development projects underway on the ground? To what extent were your governments consulted or involved in the decision as to when and how this NATO engagement would be wound down? And so I would just urge you, maybe it is time to start focusing on a much more effective, robust, and rigorous European foreign and defense capability. Because this is not good for you guys. And you are going to take a lot of the brunt, I think, of how this mission transpired. That was Sarah Chase, ending this edition of the Rackman Review. If you enjoyed this episode, we would appreciate it if you could tell a friend or leave a review on Apple Podcasts. You can find the Rackman Review in all the usual podcast apps.